Beer has energy. Beer is a living food. If you put energy in a glass, it gives off good energy. It gives off something like the glow of a lantern. I set out on a warm May afternoon to reach Lantern from my place in Fremont. It's not a long journey, only six miles or so, but the whole thing is a steady hill climb. That means first gear. Cars are blasting by as I circled north of Green Lake. Then I blasted up the hill to Finney Ridge and north on to Greenwood. My name's Chris Engdahl. Uh, I'm the founder and uh, owner, co-owner with my wife uh, of Lantern Brewing. We started the brewery late 2010 was the founding in our first location. It's on 74th and Greenwood, Finney's first brewery. I think uh, that's gotta be true. Uh, seven and a half years makes you a pretty old brewery actually. Yeah. Uh, by Seattle standards. Most people are surprised that we've been around that long. Yeah, we've consciously not done a bunch of advertising and just, you know, tried to, tried to do our own thing for that time. But that first spot was 600 square feet of crappy secondary shop space. I moved into that spot and realized pretty quickly that it was way too small and way, really the thing was it was too energy limited. It wasn't even the square footage. Uh, what do you mean by that? There was not enough electricity, there was not enough gas, the water system was inadequate, the drainage system was woefully inadequate. What kind of energy intensive equipment are you bringing in? We started on a one barrel system basically and just driving two direct fire burners was maxing out how <laughs> much natural gas we could get in there. Not to mention that it was really cumbersome to you know, do that energy source in the first place. Uh, at the time, I think we were the second smallest brewery in, Se uh, in Washington. The liquor control agents were more bemused, I think, than anything. Before we get started, I'd like to thank supporters of the podcast, craftbeerclub.com. If you know someone who loves craft beer, and I suspect you do, then give the gift of beer with the Craft Beer of the Month. Craft Beer Club finds award-winning beer from around the country and ships it straight to your door, 12 beers at a time. Support the podcast and drink beer by going to cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club to take a look. That's cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club. I'm your host, The Cycling Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. So you probably made 50 barrels a year, or 100, 100 barrels a year, not very many? Uh, well, the first year of Operation 2010, I think we managed to do like six barrels. 2011, it might have been, I don't know, we probably doubled to like 12. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> our only pragmatic option at the time was to brew as much as we could and put everything in bottles. The most efficacious place I found to sell the bottles was at the uh, Finney Farmer's Market. 2011, uh, that was kind of our, our thing, was brewing for the farmer's market. Package it up in 22-ounce uh, bombers. Looking back, I realized it was really dumb, and I hope that nobody ever does that again. Um, <laughs> I've had a lot of people come in and say, oh, you started small, that's so cool, and I just always shake my head and say, yeah, you know, <laughs> thank you for being so kind. It was, uh, so it was kind of like, uh, you know, one of those stringy little organisms that you see living on the bottom of a rock somewhere. That was kind oh, of yeah. how, I, how I think of our brewery. We just, <laughs> and nature just, finds a way. Lantern yeah. finds a way. Yeah, we, you know, we were just like, you know, eating the algae off the bottom of rocks to survive. And that was the, the tiny little brewery. Early 2012, we started looking for space. And I believe that I looked at every single space that 
there is a brewery now in Ballard. You know, I walk around Stoop and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this building. <laughs> Lucky Envelope, I was like, yep, I looked at this space. You know, it's like I've seen them all because I've been in them looking around. And I decided against going down to Ballard, even though... Do you um, remember maybe seven years ago how many breweries were in Ballard at the time? Two or three. Hilliards was down there. Um, Northwest Peaks was down there. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was just a handful of places. Um, I'm sort of thankful that I didn't choose a location down there, even though it would have given us a big boost as far as the retail goes. Uh, and instead, we found this location up here in North Seattle, effectively the northeast uh, corner of the Greenwood neighborhood. Mm -hmm. The land that time forgot. I expect to see dinosaurs. Do you want to be a little more specific? Can you be a little more specific about the reasons you didn't quite like Ballard? Uh, what I see now is that there is so much change, and so that area is really unstable. As far. So you like that up here, things are a little slower paced, like the city hasn't quite reached up here yet to like just... Well, what I like about up here is that the pressure on real estate is not likely to be quite so heavy as it is in Ballard. And that's what I've seen in several of the spaces that I previously looked at. Like, mm -hmm. you know, holy crap, I'm, I'm glad I didn't get... Get committed to that level. Get committed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because um, you find a great location and you, you, know, you build up a brewery and it takes you a year to get there. And then there's a bunch of people around and you're rocking and rolling. And then all of a sudden, you know, some major change happens to the property next door. And it may, it may very well change your entire business model. It may put a significant impact on your ability to get materials in and out, you know, it's all these kind of longer term risks that I was looking at and thinking, oh, wow, you know, could be great for a little bit. It might be great for a longer bit, but there's a real chance that there's going to be some huge churn. Mm -hmm. Stability wise, this is the way to go. Yeah, it, this, this area very much suited us. It's out of the way. It's, it's not a great retail spot, but it lets us, you know, kind of focus on the core of the business and that's supposed to be production brewing. So how big is the brewery now? Barrel-wise, um, uh, kettle size, stuff like that? We're brewing on a 15-barrel system, nominally. Some days it squeezes out maybe a 15.8-barrel batch. And the square footage that we're talking about is right around, call it 5,500 square feet of production space. The capacity is nowhere near maxed out, so we've only got really three fermentation vessels and then a packaging tank. Um, and that's allowed us to do everything we need to do so far. And you know, as I'm looking out over the production floor here, it's completely been colonized by all these damn oak barrels that I've managed to get my hands on. There are- I'm seeing lots of empty airspace though. So there's room for vertical growth. Definitely, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a good cubic, cubic foot potential in here. <laughs> This is a segment I like to call Using IPAs to Paint a Bleak Picture of the Brewing Industry. We will return to our regularly scheduled programming of Talking About Lanterns Beer in just a few minutes. I've seen a lot of cases where breweries have taken steps to grow and then had to make commitments in order to fund that growth. And we're trying to do it the other way around. IPA is interest juice. So there are a lot of breweries who five to 10 years ago looked at the growth of, of the brewing, basically the growth of beer sales and said, hey, we can do that too. Let's, you know, let's brew an IPA. It's an easy sale. 
you know, and we'll just uh, brew into that channel. And then they either were able to leverage sales to grow their equipment, right, to capitalize, or more often, they actually went in with a lot of capital, basically got locked into selling something that sells a lot, and now are fueling this mania for IPA. When I was seeing that happen, I was thinking, well, that's kind of a crappy thing. Not only is that a real risky business model, because you're counting on a very narrow slice of the beer world to, to you know, make your loan payment. Also, it sucks because out of all the breweries that are out there, I mean, literally 90 something percent of craft breweries do an IPA, which means that there's a way too much IPA, way too much, you know, you can name the number of styles on one hand that you see the most of. Mm -hmm. And that is a disservice to the consumer. That's a disservice to, you know, people's brains, basically. Uh, I've heard a stat that IPAs outsell other all other styles four to one or something insane like that. Like they just outsell that much, and if you don't have an IPA, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably exactly what you're talking about. But I'm looking at your menu right now, trying to see if I spot an IPA up there, and mm -hmm. I don't think I do. Nope. So you don't like IPAs, you don't like brewing them, and you don't want to be beholden to the IPA gods. Well, I do like IPAs. I do like brewing them. We don't brew one because it doesn't fit with the very specific focus area that we have. And I felt like it was critical, aside from those business reasons, I thought it was critical to really create a brewery with a real identity. If you brew an IPA and you know the other handful of, of things, just like everybody else, you lose your identity. And there's a lot of breweries that are basically just vanilla craft breweries. You, know, you look at them and you look at their profile and you go, yep, you know, they just kind of signed up for the whole package and they, they don't, you can't pin anything on, okay, what, what makes them special? What makes them, what makes them a thing? For us, I really want us to develop and maintain that, our own identity, our own thing. And so IPA definitely doesn't fit with our thing. I've actually brewed a decent amount of IPA for other breweries in here, and I enjoy IPAs when I can find a decent one, but along with the glut of IPAs out there is a glut of really, you know, pretty sad ones. I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem that the brewing industry has to figure out. I think just part of the evolution and the maturation is going to be breweries really figuring out who they want to be, if they really want to be a unique brewery and then figuring out what they can offer that truly is special. Because if you're, just, if you're just existing to sell IPA, then you're basically a, a surf. You become a surf to a distribution channel. And you know, if you wanna do that, then you know, if that's your entire business model uh, and you don't have any aspirations or, or thoughts about having an identity, then that's fine. But if you're one of many, many breweries that are existing just to sell an IPA into a distributed set of channels, and that's how you make all your payments, that's how you pay your staff and everything, then that's great. I hope your IPA point? is excellent, and I hope it survives for a long, long time. Otherwise, you are screwed.
You are painting a bleak picture that I, like, I'm imagining, like, right now, because I can see it, I'm imagining all these people, brewers everywhere, you're probably imagining a few specific ones, I can imagine a couple specific ones that blend in uh, to this, to the background, um, you know, don't have a, don't have a personality or anything, and you imagine every one of these brewers probably did the same thing, or a similar thing to you, get out of that nine to five, you know, get out of whatever job we had before, join the beer ecosystem only to have ourselves be reinserted as just IPA producing machines. And uh, I think, yeah, I think I see what you're saying. I think I see the fear. That's like, or I, I, I see the bleak picture. Yeah, right. And I, I, I don't mean to paint a really bleak picture, even though that might be kind of what I'm saying. I do think it's going to be bleak for many people who are unaware of their own position and who are unintentional about what they're doing. I think there's going to be a point at which they go, oh, wow, people aren't buying our beer anymore. You know, oh, let's do something else. And then they're going to really struggle with what that something else is. And they're not going to have a real sense of what it is or what it could be. And then they're going to go away. Right. And, and just with the numbers of breweries that there are today, uh, I start to think that day is coming quite soon uh, because there's many more pints of beer being brewed than there are kind of the faucets to pour them. So I think there's going to be a, a long period of reckoning for some of the breweries that are coming online now. So you're saying we're definitely getting close to that market saturation point and, and the uh, collaborative brewing environment we have now is maybe we'll start to tear up a little bit, not to continue to add bleak embellishments to your no, I, I just think that the kind of raw, raw days of, yay, we're craft brewers, is gone. I think that's now in the past. And I think that for a number of reasons, people are starting to kind of think a little bit harder about their beer choices. The breweries that don't have a really well thought out plan on how to continue offering something interesting, I think they are not going to make the cut. That's, you know, not my prediction. That's basically an economic fact. There are too many producers right now. So the, and whether it's, you know, a, an issue of collaboration or not, there's just too much capacity and too many producers. There has already begun the, uh, kind of a, a shrinkage of breweries and that'll, that'll continue. And that all is just to say in a very, very long winded way that that's why we do a different set of beer. That's why we still are not, you know, like trying to max out the space with tanks and, you know, get bottling lines in here and everything. Uh, that's kind of why we're still being very, you know, Slow. bottom bottom of the rock. Careful. Careful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're a little mouse and we only come out at night to eat very little, and we, you know, we're gonna. We're gonna to try to grow, but it's gonna be very slow, and that's kind of that's all right with us. Surf. Yeah. Um, yep. Tell us about the beers that you do brew. What do yes. you have over here? I see a lot of farmhouse, barrel aged, uh, funky stuff. Um, I, I've been drinking the um, the beet one every time I came, and I'm not sure I see it up there right now. No, we had we uh, temporarily ran out of the naughty gnome beet infused beer. Yeah, we focus on French and Belgian style beer. Uh, in large part due to the fact that I have kind of personal history and a personal uh, passion for that area of the world, 
one of the reasons why we focus on those styles of beer just very broadly from that part of the world, you know, basically northern France through Belgium into the Netherlands and then over a little bit into Alsace and Franconia is because I have felt for a long time that American producers were getting it wrong and that they weren't really paying attention uh, to what was going on. Um, do you mean that specifically? Like, do you mean that um, old-time American beer, all the Budweiser and crap we've had to put up with for no, forever? Or do you mean now modern craft is included? I mean modern craft beer especially, yeah, because there was a push to be experimental and kind of go outside of what the old domestic producers were doing, and people got excited about these different styles and the different you know, different parts of the world, uh, and they started to try to produce examples of them, and what I felt was that most of the examples of Belgian-style beer were not done very well, and they were done in ways that were, in fact, kind of a disservice to the traditions of that part of the world. Well, the inspiration was, uh, again, you know, just trying to recreate some of the flavors and the context of what I had remembered from uh, living in Paris for trying to create something that was interesting, that represented a tradition in a large part of Northern Europe, but to do it in a way that kind of reflected what we had around here instead of what they have there. European inspiration, American ingredients. Would that be like a good tagline? Yeah, great. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's largely it. Well, the things that I felt were not being done uh, carefully enough with American craft interpretations of Belgian style and French style beer was A, often the flavors were just wrong or they were just, you know, too jacked, just like way too estery or way too many of the wrong esters. Or, you know, people essentially would take some small facet of a beer and then jack it up. And it was like they had this idea that American beer should just be what that is, but way more. But most of them sucked. I've definitely had some examples of like American Hefeweizens where they go, oh yeah, this should taste banana-y. Yeah. And you drink it, you go, you must have poured bananas in right. this because it tastes like a banana. Yeah. You know, like, and that's not exciting. I mean, yeah. like that's kind of fun the first time you ever do it. Yeah. Once you've done it for a while and you sort of know the context and the history and, you know, gone and have had a real Bavarian Hefeweizen, you're like, the hell are we doing over here? Mm -hmm. So I can see what you're saying. I was starting to feel like that was a disservice because most people had not had, uh, for example, a beer de garde or a traditional Hefeweizen or you know, a Dunkelweizen, something that would be interesting and a lot of people would really enjoy if it was done really well. But too many breweries were doing them just as novelties and just as you know, some sort of little bangle to hang on the side of their you know, their portfolio to say, oh, look, we do an international style. Uh, and when, when you do a bad example of a beer, it doesn't do anybody any good. In fact, it damages all beer because then people go, oh, I don't like Dunkelweizen. I don't like Hefeweizen. I don't like Bière de Garde. Our approach has been to present these more as they would be enjoyed in those countries, not jacked up, not over the top. And then, you know, as a matter of ecological sensitivity, yeah, to use what's around us instead of importing a bunch of Belgian malt. You know, French malt is, the, the French produce a huge amount of 
the world's malt. I don't use French malt because we've got excellent malt here. The beer is not going to taste exactly the same, but that's kind of the point. It's, you know, take those ideas and take those concepts, take the flavor uh, ideas, and then do that beer with what we have here. And if, you know, if there's something really interesting around here, for example, the Skagit Valley Malting does a lot of really interesting uh, color malts, and they do really great base malt as well. It's still really cool to be able to use that more neutral, more sort of uh, economic malt when it can bring something to the beer. In creating a beer that's inspired by Belgian or French beers, but then uses our ingredients, you sort of are creating something, recreating something old that no one else has gotten to try, that they should be able to get in Europe, but sort of putting, you know, our spin on it, our mm -hmm. American spin on it. And you can, you can claim it as your own, say it's something new, but also say it's something old. It's probably a pretty good, yeah, pretty good goal. And at the end of the day, what, what I intend for our beer is to say, this is lantern beer. This is Washington brewed lantern beer. It's not meant to be a, a replica. It's not meant to be somebody else's, you know, a copy of something else. It's meant to be our beer. And we can stand behind it, and here's how we produce it, and here's the things that we're doing, uh, you know, to, to, to make it. Here are the people that we're dealing with. Here are the, you know, the, the malt producers, the fruit producers. Here are the hop growers. Here are the, you know, Hey, let's go talk to Seattle uh, Public Utilities about their water. Brewer's Corner, Brewer's Corner. I think it's time for the Brewer's Corner. If you make beer, and I'm sure that you do, then it's time to learn a thing or two. While you learn about beer, the time really flies. Brewers are nerds and can often be wise. In the Brewer's Corner, these folks share their tips. Take heed and your drinkers will be licking their lips. Do you do anything to treat your water here? Generally not, not at a, a gross scale. Uh, we'll use some water treatments when it makes sense for basically fermentation, but otherwise we're not, for example, burtonizing the water. We're not using heavy uh, magnesium sulfate additions, anything like that. Because to me, that's kind of like, you know, using imported malt. Like why change the entire profile of your water just so you can say, oh, this is much closer to something from somewhere else. Why not use the water and say, yeah, you know, it's, it's our water. You know, it's, it's Seattle water. It's coming off the Tolt River. That's what it is. And here's the beer it makes. It's not about, um, it's about making good beer that's different. It's not about making the same beer, good beer that's the same. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, I know what you mean. Time for a segment I like to call You're Drinking Beer Wrong. It's a segment where me and a brewer get to talk about all the ways that you can be drinking beer better. None of this stuff really matters at all. You can drink beer however you want, and I don't care. And neither should you. We were talking about some of the things that you find controversial. Um, you said you had a lot of big opinions. I mentioned Untapped and AB InBev, and um, you thought that maybe I had been tipped off that you're an opinionated person. What are some of the things you're opinionated on? I mean, I'm enough of 
an idiot to give an opinion on just about anything. So it's, <laughs> you know, I'm just, you know, point me in some direction and I'll just start jabbering at it. My opinion on AB InBev, great. They're a big company. They are now, you know, the, the uh, effectively a, a monopoly-like producer of beer in the world. Um, and that would be bad enough if they weren't actively trying to undermine the meaning and the spirit of craft beer. Um, so my own personal uh, I don't touch any of their products, including any of the products brewed by any of the, the breweries that they've acquired. To me, to me, Elysian's dead. Ten Barrel, dead. Goose Island, dead. Wicked Weed, dead. Um, you know, you can go down the list of things. I feel like it's certainly within the rights of an American business to acquire other businesses. And it's, you know, a long-standing practice in the brewing industry. The power that they wield, though, as far as advertising and marketing, also putting pressure on distributors and other channels that actively undermine and actively damage what craft brewers you know doing. Can you describe how some of that happens? Some of the pressures they're putting on distributors, and I suppose that here's what I've heard, um, and I, maybe you can go in on give us more detail on it. Here's what I've heard is basically what they do is they use their craft beer brands they've acquired to kind of create the illusion of choice at a lot of these bars. Mm -hmm. They can go in and they can sell to the dock next to my house uh, a, a barrel of whatever, a keg of whatever, for a hunt for $20 less than anyone else can. The only There's only one real brewery that can sell beer to the dock, and that's Fremont Brewery, which is right across the street from them. So mm -hmm. when they distribute their beer, they roll it across the street and right. cost $0 in distribution. Right. Um, but other than that, no one else can compete. And you go there and it's got a Legion and Tim Barrel and Goose Island all on tap, and then a couple of Fremont tap handles. And, they can, and they're doing that until everyone else has to stop. And once, once you can't get into this bar anymore uh, because you've been priced out and your sales eventually drop down because you can't sell to these bars, you can't go to that price, then they'll just bring their prices right back up and uh, continue to have every tap handle at a bar where everyone expects to see Goose Island. Yeah, that's not an unlikely scenario. Right, that would be a hard thing for the attorney general of any state to say, oh, well, we see evidence of this. Mm -hmm. What I do see is just a company whose resources so vastly outstrip anybody else. There's a big part of this that's, that it approaches sort of conspiracy theory speak. And so I try to stay away from that level. I mean, there, you can let your imagination run wild. And in some cases, you might be right about what's going on behind the scenes, right? But... My, my kind of, I guess my beef is uh, twofold. Number one, yes, they've acquired all these craft brands. They've added to their portfolio. Uh, in a lot of cases, it seemed like a really cynical way to um, continue with the level of sales that they expected. In fact, you know, the level of sales that their investors demanded. Uh, but they've kind of taken it a step further. And that is to position those brands as craft. And so that undermines the very idea of what craft is about. To their credit, they realized that people that were in the craft industry hadn't done that for themselves. So we left ourselves very vulnerable to being co-opted because too many of us were like, yay, we're craft. What does that mean? We're not domestic. What does that mean? We don't know. We're not domestic, so we're craft. You know, it's like, well, you got to figure out what you are and what you want to be, and then you, you know, then you can say yes, you are craft, or no, you're not. Um, so the other part, though, it, that kind of worries me 
is that this global company has you know, way more resources than all of the smaller breweries combined, and they can market exponentially higher scales. They can send, literally, the, the way it often works in a local beer market is that whoever can send people out more and whoever can establish and maintain relationships with bar owners and, and decision makers in a bar often get those sales. If I'm Chris and I own Lantern and I have right now a part-time sales guy, my part-time sales guy can cover a very small amount of territory on any given day. If I'm AB InBev and I now have an influx of capital and I can maintain a uh, fleet of sales people and vehicles and I can go out and cover way, way, way more, just a lot more relationship building. On the, on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's kind of, you know, if you're, if you're a big company, you should have the right to do that. That's just the nature of things, you know, yeah. the nature of sales and yeah. stuff. Except that you often come into the situation where those folks that are maintaining the relationships have kind of more resource at their disposal than even another company that was of similar size. They can offer things that a small brewery for sure could never offer. They can offer uh, things that even other bigger breweries can't offer. For example? Um, so I'm, I won't say any legally binding things, but uh, for example, they can offer services or they can offer purchase options. There are just things that many of those larger companies can offer that smaller companies never will be able to. Even though it's legal, mostly, uh, I, I, and I will say, you know, for the record, I've seen examples of where illegal things happen, but there, there is no enforcement of it, so yeah. there you are. But e you know, even if those things are legal, it creates an unfair playing field okay. in that regard. What I'm imagining, and I don't even know what to imagine for something that might be illegal, maybe I just don't know what, it's a, what kind of stuff is legal and illegal. I'm imagining like a Budweiser salesman or a Legion salesman go up and tell a bar, hey, listen, we got every single, t we got all these tap handles, they're super cool, they're huge, they cost a, you know $200 a piece to make, they're really great, or whatever they've got. You know, they're not, it's not cheap to make tap handles. Tap handles you have are like wooden pieces with taps on them, right? It's not like you've got fancy, Oh, ours suck. Well, ours yeah, <laughs> like it's not like, yeah, they're just expensive. But, but once you get your injected mold in whatever Goose Island sure. tap handle head on there. Sure, to whatever really degree neat. that's yeah. important, right? Like, yeah, so that, that becomes a thing. You can start giving out those. You can start giving out like, well, maybe you're talking about selling kegs for cheaper. That's the kind of what I can imagine. Maybe you can give out kinds of fun merchandise to bars, like all the cool mirrors and neat crap and stuff like that. That's kind of stuff that you don't necessarily have access to as a small brewery. Uh, but I don't really know, I'm not really familiar with sales tactics. I'm definitely not familiar with what you're talking about right now. Yeah. What, maybe what's an example of something that maybe one of these salesmen could do that would be actually illegal? Draft system installation and maintenance uh, in exchange for continued future sales. Oh. Sales options of, of artificially limited and artificially uh, exclusive products. Uh, you know, especially future promises of artificially limited and, and uh, artificially uh, exclusive products uh, in exchange for continued sales up to that point. You know, there are any number of things that are very soft, very difficult to kind of detect on a regulatory basis and very prevalent at a large scale, especially in a big market like Seattle. Lots of ways that you can incent small business owners especially in a highly competitive restaurant and bar market like this to make decisions in your favor. You know, it's, it's just a lot easier when you've got 
that much more leeway and that much less exposure, mm -hmm. right? If, if my sense is that it's very infrequently a blatant, hey, we're, we're going to sell you this for 70 bucks. We're selling it to everybody else for 110. That's, that's pretty blatant and that's on the face of it illegal. And I, I don't think you'd see a whole lot of that. But what you would see is, hey, you should buy these cheap beers and fill up some taps because, hey, everybody likes cheap beer. Uh, and then also, you know, if you hit this kind of, if you help us hit this kind of quota, we'll float you the opportunity to buy one of these special beers later mm -hmm. on. Um, oh, and by the way, for all the people that buy the special beer, they're going to get this cool special tap system that you can, you know, show off. How about a, you know, a neon sign? That'll, you know, of course we have to take it back, you know, at some future date. But in the meantime, you can hang a cool neon expensive sign and lots yeah. of things that if you drive around and look pretty carefully at bars and how they operate, uh, you'll see things that make you wonder. Um, all that being said, and all those opinions being spewed, I try not to let it bother me because I have a whole lot of faith in people. You know, the majority of people in Seattle, especially, are pretty savvy about what they drink and pretty savvy about the way the world works and pretty savvy about what they will support. And so it, our approach is, all right, fuck them. We're not gonna be as competitive uh, on that scale, um, you know, that's not something that that's not the dark side that I want to go to. I want to stay on the, you know, the light side and say, let's just freaking brew the very best beer we can brew. Let's keep telling people that this is what we want to do, and and you know that we're trying to make them happy, and um, you know, keep doing that. Like there's there should be nothing else. There's just that focus toward brewing the best beer you can brew and making sure that people have a chance to to taste it and in in a very naive way that should be all that's necessary all right well i've mentioned already untapped so that's oh, yeah. like a lot of brewers fucking hate because it just like doesn't nobody knows how to use it no consumer no drinker yep now untapped lost me a long time ago the more i realized that it was a complete cf when I started looking at the top ranked beers and started to realize that, wow, Goose Island is number one, three, and six, you know, of all beer, people seem to flock to that beer in bot-like droves. And it's kind of amazing that so many people use Untapped and have all these weird reactions to all the craft beer out there, but have all these unified responses to very highly marketed you know, top tier internationally owned brands. It's kind of strange. So my feeling about Untapped is that until they, unless and until they provide a real cyclical feedback system, they're kind of useless. Would it be useful to have an app that was like Untapped but only allowed like BJCP judges or no. Cicerones or something? Good Lord, you want my opinion on that? <laughs> yeah, go no. all in. No. Absolutely not. In fact, that for me is the other major flaw of untapped, and then that bleeds into my feelings about BJCP and and you know the the especially the we'll pop that in a second classification of beer. Yeah, um, you can't 
so basically, I mean, in a nutshell, you can't boil beer down to numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, and to try to classify beer in those very, very uh, rigorous, very sort of numerically based um, models does a disservice to beer, does a disservice to people um, in their enjoyment of beer. And then, in the case of untapped, tricks people into thinking that there's a way to kind of rate and rank and classify and more importantly deep you know uh, de-rank and and bash on beer that doesn't match an ideal um, so my my feeling is that a there is no ideal in the first place um, that those ideals the the ba the bjcp um, any sort of beer guidelines they're entertaining they're fun to read through and say oh wow yeah you know here's some numbers we can kind of get our get our minds around but then to take the step of saying well this is not a beer of this style uh, because it doesn't have the right OG or oh this you know it's way way too many esters it couldn't possibly be a Kolsch well you want to say maybe like maybe you'll agree that what they're doing over there is just sort of taking their best attempt their best stab at solving the first problem for like untapped, where people would take a sip of a beer and go, I don't like this type of beer anyway, one star. And you have to be able to say somewhere, you have to draw the line somewhere between styles, otherwise you get that problem. No. You can't have that person going, I hate all beers, one star, but really having, you I, know. I reject the idea that you can actually effectively classify beer. Uh, for me, the only classification of beer is if you're enjoying it at a given time or not. And honestly, for me, that doesn't even discount, you know, that doesn't say that you should kick a beer out of the club. All beer for me is inherently contextual and has everything to do not just with the beer and trying to get, you know, a high degree of precision on measuring the beer, but what you're doing and what you're, what you're doing with the beer, who you're with, what you're having with it. I always which, say that. I would say 90% of the beer flavor comes from how much fun you're having right then. Absolutely. But I mean, I still think that you can attempt to categorize beer. If you want to classify things grossly. You can certainly say, yeah, this is a Belgian yeast beer, right? Like you can't really deny that, right? Oh, I, I can. <laughs> I, that's, for me, that's the absolute worst way to try to classify. Really? the Belgian style. Okay. And that's the first thing that people go to. Oh, what yeast do you use? Oh, what, you know, it must be a Belgian yeast. They're all the same freaking yeast. They're, they're, and that actually underscores my issue with, you know, classification and categorization of beer. Um, it's not the things that go into it necessarily, any one thing. It's everything that goes into it and it's how the beer was treated and it's the way that it's presented at the end of the day that's the most important so who cares what yeast you use you know you can use a you know whatever variant of Saccharomyces cerevisiae that you want to produce any kind of beer you have to be more careful in some cases with some strains than other uh, cases if you intend a very estuary uh, presentation then you, you know, there's a set of uh, variants that you maybe want to focus on. If you want a very neutral, low ester, no phenolic, then there's you know a, definitely a lot easier presentation with some yeasts than with others. And it's not as if the yeast that anybody uses got on a plane and came from Belgium. 
it's not the yeast that defines the beer. It's the approach and it's the presentation that defines the beer as to what lands in the glass at any given time. Hmm. Let me try to figure out what I think you're saying. So you're definitely saying it's more complicated than just the yeast. Mm -hmm. Definitely saying that like the idea that we might call Belgian yeast Belgian yeast is like air quotes Belgian yeast. We call it Belgian yeast. All right. Um, is absurd. You don't quite like that. You, obviously, it's not just a Belgian yeast anymore. It's just a yeast that kind of pr produces these sort of flavors. Um, and you're saying not even in general do they produce those sort of flavors. They, or it may be in general, maybe on average, but sort of quit quit trying to blame the yeast for this kind of thing that's going on over here. Um, or quit relying on yeast yeah. to define a beer. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, but at a certain point, can't you then can't you rely on like the grain bill at some point to try to define or the hop profile or um, or maybe even, yeah, just like the brewing process itself, the kind of mash you're doing. I would say uh, that any decent brewer could use any set of roughly equivalent ingredients, malt, hops, water, yeast, and produce something that they intended to produce in a, you know, in a certain way. And that they shouldn't rely on Maris Otter to, per, you know, to brew a, a British-style pale. And they shouldn't rely on a air quotes, Belgian style yeast to produce a Belgian beer. They should be able to look at what they intend to produce and know how to get there based on any of an available set of ingredients. Well, what so, about specific historical styles? If you like look back and you see, you read some old book somewhere that some old abbey, some Belgian abbey produced beer in its exact way, and you do everything you can do to mimic their process, you try to mimic with like the most, re like what could possibly be interpreted as like the local ingredients, historical ingredients, mm -hmm. you know, from the area um, or whatever. And you try to produce a beer that was produced the exact same way it was produced back then. Now you're making a historical style. Can you then say, listen, I try to make this Abbey, I try to make this Trappist beer, this Abbey beer the exact way that they did. Can I now call it an Abbey beer? Like, can I now call it this thing that no. they called it? No, you would never be able to do that mm -hmm. because you're not there. Mm -hmm. You would, you would, you could loosely say it's an Abbey style beer, mm -hmm. but one ingredient or the other wouldn't get you there. The entire process, the, the culmination of all of those processes together, the material selection, the brewing process, the fermentation process, the cellaring process, the packaging, it all has to add up to an intended result that you then could say, well, this is our Abbey style tripel. This is mm -hmm. our Abbey style double. There's no one thing in there that defines that. And the only thing that defines it is, at the end of the day, somebody saying, oh, this is my Debel. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's way different than a Chimay, then, then so be it. You know, somebody still can say, this is my Abbey-style Debel. Okay, now I definitely see what you're saying. So there's definitely a, a, a set of expectations that you might have. Well, if you're going to tell me this is an Abbey-style Debel, and you're going to tell me that you were inspired by Chimay Rouge, then you know, I'm kind of expecting it to be somewhat similar to Chimay Rouge. But in the end, the product you made is your own product. Yeah. It's a Chimay Rouge yeah. a la Chris. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's its own beer and get out of my face with this whole Chimay shit. Like, yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. And, you know, my approach and kind of our orientation here is that if you do that, you should, you should be able to stand behind that beer at the end of the day and say, Look, we made this and we didn't use a Belgian style yeast. Like that's, that's not what this beer is about. 
the beer is about following some of the same ideas that the monastic brewers did, but frankly, it's ridiculous to say, well, this is a this is beer done in the same way as the monks did it because because it wasn't because you didn't live in an abbey. You don't live in an abbey. You have a brewery that you yeah, did some abbey shit. They they they, they did not have stainless steel, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> so there are there are many different things you you know many things that are different that you could point out. So maybe your what you really like and you you certainly buy into the whole like presentation is the battle. The more fun you're having in a moment, the better the beer is. If I'm trying to serve a homebrew at my house and I've made a beer that is you know I think is really really good, mm-hmm. regardless of how I present it, if I present it to a BJCP judge, every sip they have of that beer is maybe you would maybe you would say is sort of spoiled by the context that they come into it with yep. right because they're going to come in here and go well did you use this ingredient yep. or did you try this process because i don't know if this is exactly what you meant right i think i see what you're saying yep okay yeah we don't enter competitions for that reason you don't I, enter competitions at all no i i think it's disingenuous uh i think that the idea that you can judge beer numerically and score it is entirely the wrong idea. Like I respect people that study beer and learn those things for their own edification and for you know for their own entertainment. But to then be so presumptive that you could say, well I'm gonna go into a room with a whole bunch of other people who have similarly studied and we're gonna sit down and we're gonna pick the best one of these. That's like somebody you know that's so acontextual it's just ridiculous so my feeling is that there's no point in doing that i've heard arguments that well you get a medal you get recognition you get you know marketability but at at what sort of cost Mm -hmm. right at a a very disingenuous cost for us Mm -hmm. i think there are brewers out there who are really driven by that and they're really excited by that mm-hmm. and i would i would for my feeling is i'm sort of libertarian enough to say okay go for it like if that's what excites you and that's why you brew then damn it do it i mean if you're more like on the engineering side and that's you want to make a beer that exactly finishes with a residual extract of you know 4.3 play-doh then man fucking go for it mm-hmm. like if that's what it's all about for you if you don't give a flying whatever about what it tastes like, but that's the residual extract you want, and you don't care about how much people are gonna enjoy it, you just wanna brew to the numbers, then go for it. Like, don't be half-assed about it. Like, make a series of beer that can be quantified numerically and put it out there. Like, I'm waiting for the brewery that's gonna do that. You know, beer 17, you know, it's, what style is it? It's 17, it's number 17, it's the 17 style. You know, go look it up. You know, you can get it tested, you can get it quantified, you can present it in a very, you know, you could present it in a square glass for all I care. And I would say, man, that's cool. That's something new. But anything in between that and just putting a glass out and saying, I hope you enjoy this, to me is pretty disingenuous. Hmm. I think there's something to be said a little bit, though, for some of those quantifiable measures for beer. I mean, obviously, you want to be able to measure beer that, in a way that allows you to be consistent. If you want to make beer that is, if you want to but, dial in a beer that you think could be better. But that's for the brewer. Yeah. Do you carry a, a, do you carry a refractometer around when you taste beer? No, I don't. You're right. Do you, okay. do you have a, 
right? Do you I have see, a, I see what you mean. I do you have a TA kit that you bring and sure, you say... Sure, not. Okay. Right. All right, all right. I see what you mean. Um, so, okay. So, yes, definitely on the production side and on the quality control side, that's critical. Mm-hmm. But that's an internal process, okay. and that I should was, have. I was for a second almost thinking he doesn't yeah. just like brew by the like, absolute seat of his pants back. Oh, heck like, no. Okay. <laughs> no, I've got Excel for days. You know, we've got refractometers and electronic doodads back there that are telling me all about the beer, right? And that's a really important part of it because you do want to be consistent with your presentation. On the other hand, we also just do crazy stuff, and I'm like, I don't know, you know. What's the residual extract? I don't know. What, what, what's the ABV? Well, shit, I don't know. I better test to make sure we're in like 0.3% to stay legal. But other than that, I don't know and I don't care. There's definitely a need and room for a lot of those numeric values. But even when you're talking about the GABF, uh, you know, I get kind of frustrated because people just go apeshit over that. And that to me, the GABF is kind of like the craft beer industry is shooting itself in the foot because people are getting so excited about all these awards and all these medals and all this categorization and competition and stuff, but it has nothing to do with people's enjoyment of the beer at the end of the day. And it defocuses what should be happening, which is brew good beer. Brew beer that people will enjoy, that is interesting, and you can put in front of somebody and stand behind it. Yikes, there's a lot to unpack there. He definitely had a lot of good points, and it wasn't until I sat down to edit this that I really understood everything that he was saying. You might agree with some of it. You probably don't agree with all of it. Maybe give it a second listen and decide for yourself. Thanks a lot, Chris. It was a pleasure coming to Lantern, and thank you for listening. Have you heard of Gigantic Bicycle Fest yet? If you like art, camping, music, bikes, and beer, or really any combo of those things, all for charity, then this is for you. August 24th to 26th in Snoqualmie, Washington. Sign up on giganticbicyclefest.org, and for half off your weekend pass, use promo code BEER. Giganticbicyclefest.org, promo code BEER. See you there. If you want to hear more episodes of Washington Beer Talk, then go to cyclingcistern.com. They're all up there. You can also find them wherever you get your podcasts, like Stitcher, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Do you know a brewery that wants to be on Washington Beer Talk? Then go to cyclingcistern.com and contact me. We'll talk. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please leave a rating. Go back to Facebook and comment and like. The best way to support the Cycling Cistern is to get on your bike and drink. Please bike and drink responsibly.